I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Philip Bondi saw a little bit of everything in his four decades of sports writing. Some of that was because his career was spent in a New York City market. Never a dull moment in Big Apple sports. A variety of his experiences also comes from traveling the globe. Sports writing took Philip to six continents. Few can match his datelines or his stories, as you'll hear on this episode. Hey, Philip, thanks for joining us on Pressbox Access. Hey, Todd. Good to see you again. It's been a while, but I've been listening to all these uh, wonderful podcasts, and they've been a real treat. Well, great. Did you get the Venmo money that I sent you for listening? <laughs> Still waiting on that. Still wait. Do you know, I'm so old, I don't have a Venmo account. Well, I have, uh, I have kids who can help me with that kind of thing. So anyway, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I know you've got a lot of great stories from nearly 40 years, you know, based in New York City and, and traveling around the globe. And, um, and when you think about it, when somebody says to you, Philip, what was it like to be a sports writer? What do you tell them? I say it was crazy, it was stupid, it was frustrating, and it was wonderful. It was all those things. And uh, <laughs> boy, I tell you, it was, it was a wild ride, and it was a time that I, I was incredibly lucky to be part of, a, of a something of a golden era, or at least the, the fading twilight of a golden era. Um, and the, the stories I can tell and the stories I hope I'll be able to tell here, uh, they're just remarkable. The memories are great. Well, let's get into them right now. Let's do it. You've been everywhere, but, you know, let's kind of start at your home base in New York City. You're at the Daily News for so long, uh, many, many years, and also at the New York Times, uh, the record, and, uh, and started out in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, let's specifically get into the Bronx Zoo. And one particular day I want to ask you about involves other sports writers, and that's a dust-up that we experienced in the press box at Yankee Stadium. I was not there. I said we, but you were there. Ah, yes. Between Norman McLean of UPI and it involved Harold Rosenthal and Murray Chass. What the hell was going on that day at Yankee Stadium? Yeah, well, you know, the press box at Yankee Stadium is an open air box. And, uh, you know, you can lean over and practically touch the, the crowd. But on this day, on this particular day, Norm McLean, a real character, the late Norm McLean, he always wanted to be the official scorer. He loved, he, he, he found that the extra $35 that they paid him were absolutely essential to his well-being. And so... <laughs> and so $35, and I love yeah. it. So, so he was very jealous of, of Harold Rosenthal and a very elderly fellow at the time. Yeah, Harold was retired, right, from the Herald Tribune? Yeah, at yeah. the time. But he was, he was a, semi-regular, uh, a semi-regular official scorer at, the, at Yankee Stadium. Anyway, Lou Pinella gets up at plate, and Lou, as we all know, it was quite a character. And Lou hits what would appear to be a very clear double. Uh, the outfielder barely, barely touched the ball. And Rhett was running like crazy. And Harold Rosenthal, for reasons that none of us really could understand, called it an error. Well, wait a minute. Did, did, did Lou Pinella understand that reasoning? No, no, no he did not. 
Louis, I can still see this. Eric. Some things are just memories of memories, but this is a memory. Lou Pinella standing on second base, looking up at the press box and giving the finger, both fingers, up <laughs> to the official scorers up there. So, that's, that's the Lou Pinella I grew to love when I was in Cincinnati and he was the res manager. <laughs> so, so Lou is giving the finger up on second base and uh, Norm McClain now sees the opportunity to really, I mean, he's infuriated that such an incompetent official scorer could have done such a thing. And why am I, why am I not the official scorer? Uh, he turns to the back of the press box where Harold Rosenthal is sitting and he yells, why don't you die already? Uh, so, and Harold. Wait a minute, Harold's like in his 80s, right? Yeah, he's, oh, at least, at least. Why don't oh. you die already? Um, well, Murray Chess of the New York Times is, you know, he, he is fairly formal guy. He does, he, he was a, a member of the uh, Baseball Writers Association. He liked things to be run on the up and up. And he hears Norm say this to Harold Rosenthal, and he just leaps across the table, the long desk, I should say, at Norm McLean, and they start wrestling and it really did look like the scene from North by Northwest with them sort of dangling. And maybe, maybe I'm putting a little bit of my memory here uh, to test, but they were dangling over the side. Uh, and, and it required it required several other of us reporters to pull them apart. That was the that was uh, the best dust up I've ever seen in a press box. <laughs> And yeah, well, it's not funny because, you know, people are trying to work, right? This is like your office. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I've seen plenty of nastiness, but never anything like that. Yeah, yeah. That was that was quite something. Did they ever make amends? Well, Did they ever make amends and say, you know what? Sorry about that. No, Norm walked in different circles than Murray. But I don't think Norm was... Uh, was chosen to be a, an official scorer after that. Uh, I think that sort of... Yeah, the 35 hours always went to the Herald yeah, after that. Yeah, 35 bucks can go a long Must way. Must be the chagrin of Lou Pinella. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was, if I if my memory is right, I, that did, he it, he he did reverse that call. And the, uh, Lou did <laughs> yeah. get a double out of that. Lou reversed the double, the double finger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, that just sets the tone for... Uh, what it was like sometimes in a press box, uh, you know, you just never know what you're going to run into with some of these guys. You were also there at the Pine Tar game, July 24th, 1983. Ah, yes. Another dust up where George Brett of the Kansas City Royals wanted to kill somebody, and it wasn't Harold Rosenthal. He wanted to kill umpire Tim McClellan. You actually ended up writing a great book about it, the Pine Tar game. Uh, what was it like at Yankee Stadium and can you still vividly see George coming out of the dugout? I can. And and it's funny because I actually covered the Pine Tar game originally for the Bergen record and then covered the resumption of the Pine Tar game for the New York Daily News because it took so long. Oh, wait a minute. Like from July 24th to yeah, August 18th, you switched when, papers. That's when I switched <laughs> papers. <laughs> so I actually Love covered it, it for, for two different papers. But it was, uh, yeah, it was a scene. And of course, we didn't quite know what was going on at first with the bat being measured at home plate. And then this tantrum, uh, the, I think the greatest sports tantrum ever, ever demonstrated on any field, in, in my opinion. 
And then afterwards, we go down into the uh, into the clubhouses, and George Brett is perfectly sane again. <laughs> you know, he, really? Yeah, yeah. By the time we got down there, he was he was fine. So he talked to the press about? Well, yeah, yeah. George was fine. I mean, honestly, I. There was obviously a lot of stuff in that thing. Everybody from Roy Cohn to to, uh, to Rush Limbaugh was involved in in peripherally, at least. Uh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. How was Rush Limbaugh involved? Well, Rush was the uh, he was the promotions director for the uh, Kansas City Royals at the time. Oh, so he was there that day. Yes, I had this bizarre relationship with Rush Limbaugh. And if anybody knows my politics, it does not resemble Rush Limbaugh's politics. Uh, at all. Okay. Uh, but I once covered, this is typical nonsense. Uh, I was sent to the Super Bowl down in Florida when the Giants were cover, were, were playing um, the, uh, the Baltimore Ravens. And my job was to write weird columns during the weird week up to the, uh, the Super Bowl. So I, uh, I, I wrote in the Goodyear blimp. And then I heard that Rush Limbaugh was going to be playing a round of golf down there. And I said, all right, sounds like a, sounds like a story. So I went, I read all around with him and we talked and this and that. And then of course, as sports writers and reporters do, I totally betrayed him and wrote, <laughs> wrote that he looked like the Goodyear blimp above. And, oh. and I, I, but say this for the guy, he has a sense of humor. So it turned out he starts emailing me about sports for years and years after that, especially about football. Really? So he didn't mind that you like basically said he looked like the bloom? I, I don't know how he didn't. I mean, it was a really insulting column about his golf and his and his appearance and everything. He got a kick out of it. So um, years later, I'm writing this book about the uh, Pine Tar game. And I, I've discovered that, you know, he was, he was the promotions director. I didn't really know that when I was covering the game. So I could give him a call and, and his, uh, his guy says, no, he's too busy. And then the next thing I know, he calls me up. He said, oh, nobody told me it was you. Of course I have to. Oh, oh really? <laughs> nobody told me it was the guy who said I look like a blimp. <laughs> and he gives me great stuff, very self-deprecating stuff about his time as the promotions director for the, uh, Kansas City Royals. And so that that became a chapter in the book, you know, how the players would play pranks that's, on him. That's and, fascinating. I, yeah. I don't think many people know that Rush Limbaugh was working for the Royals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there you go. You make all sorts of bizarre connections in this business, you know. And uh, that was, I would say that was my weirdest one. Well, that was definitely one of the most bizarre moments in uh, baseball history, and in really at the center of that was Billy Martin, yeah. the Yankees manager. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one who knew about the rule and decided to try to put this pine tar on the bat rule to wipe out a two-run homer by George Brett off of Goose Gossage. That's just how Martin operated, yeah. right? And, and my favorite moment in the whole thing, for me personally, was when they resumed the game. And the first thing that Martin did was appeal to the umpire's saying that George Brett had not touched all the bases a month earlier because, <laughs> because he figured this was a different umpiring crew and they would not be able to affirm uh, that, that Brett had touched all the bases. But there was this guy in, the, uh, in, the, in the, the American League office, Bob Fischel, who had worked with the Yankees. He knew Billy Martin's mind. 
and he warned the umpires about this. And one of the umps pulled out a deposition from the previous umpire crew testifying that George Brett had touched all the bases. And <laughs> Billy was Billy was sunk. Absolutely sunk. But he could be, he could be a he could be drunk and he could be a mess and he could be charming and he could be all those things. Uh, I'd say the worst thing I witnessed with him was uh, the the event with Deborah Henschel, a New York Times correspondent, not a, a freelancer, it's a young woman who was just sort of an intern, an intern. So this was like 19, the early 1980s? Eight, 1983, 1983, I believe. Okay. He goes in, She, go, I'm sorry, she goes into the clubhouse. There's nobody in there yet in terms of reporters. There's a few players. And Billy is pissed off at the moment because George had just fired his best friend, Art Fowler, the pitch, pitching coach for the millionth time to, to get at Billy. So Billy's furious. He sees this woman and he screams obscenities at her. She goes crying to George Steinbrenner, literally crying, and says, this is what hey. happened. And uh, George says, well, we're going to have to investigate. Well, George, George knew all about being investigated. Yeah, oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. So, George, so Billy claimed that he had just said to uh, this woman, the New York Times can kiss my Dago ass. She said that he told her, you can suck my whatever. Mm. So... It became come on, Billy. <laughs> Jesus. It became it became an anterior posterior investigation, mm. and it was decided that if Billy had done the had said something in the anterior fashion, he would be fired. But if it was just the if it was just this Dago acid in question, it would be okay. And sure enough, it was discovered after speaking to two of Billy's friends that it was a posterior question, and he was not fired on that particular day. Man, I just feel for the, I mean, the poor woman, the she's a young reporter at a time when, you know, women are really just trying to break down the barriers of yeah, covering yeah. sports. And then she gets subjected to, uh, oh, it was awful. to Billy Martin. It was like awful. That. He, yeah, he was terrible. Billy at his worst. Yeah. And then, and oh, it gets off. Oh, she, so he's finally, you know, he's acquitted of this crime. And the next day he's in his office talking to reporters and he, he says, well, she was this hussy with a slit up to her ass. Oh, it was all. Oh. It was just all. Anybody who thinks Billy was a charming guy all the time just didn't didn't get to see him in action. Well, you got to see him a lot, and Steinbrenner. I mean, as a as a reporter around that scene, it just had to be chaotic all the time. Yeah, yeah, and you had to, you know, they 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 were vengeful, uh, especially Steinbrenner. So if you wrote something negative, George would leap with would. You'd find yourself off the parking list the next day, and George would leak uh, a story to a competitor, you know, to the New York Post or something like that. So you, you were always aware that uh, you were being surveilled. Let's put it that way. Right. Well, you did a lot of baseball at, the, at that time um, in New York, and you also did a lot of NBA. And there was a story that I heard about you involving Hubie Brown when he was the Knicks coach. And I think it was like mid-80s, like 86. Anyway, there's a Nets game at Cleveland in the middle of winter, which you can't beat, right? Lakefront yeah. property yeah. in winter, right. Cleveland. So what happened between you and Hubie? Yeah, well, well, uh, as reporters know, we get to games usually the day beforehand so that, uh, so that we can be there for the morning shoot-around the next morning uh, and get, get prepared for that. 
But in this case, it was a Sunday afternoon game, I believe. And I had, you know, I had a family. I, I decided I'll take a chance and I'll just fly in on the same morning uh, from LaGuardia. Uh, and I, so I get on my flight, early morning flight, and uh, there's Hubie Brown in, the, in, for, or in business class or first class, whatever it was. And uh, I'm thinking... The morning of the game, yeah, he's getting on a the flight? The morning of the game, he's getting on the game. Getting on the plane. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think maybe I had a, what do I know? He's scouting. He had a personal reason, whatever. So everything's okay until the, they announce on the, uh, on the plane, there's been a, pro, there's a problem. They're iced in at, uh, at Cleveland Airport. We're going to have to land in Pittsburgh. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, it's now, you know, I don't know, 11 a.m. or something like that. Game's about two hours away, or something like that. I don't remember specifics. Uh, and QBC said, I'm on the plane, and he comes to me and goes, Let's, you come with me, we're renting a car. Oh, you guys are going to drive together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's driving like a madman. He's gone 80 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour on the Ohio Turnpike. And we get to a toll booth, and, uh, and QB leans out of the window, and he goes, how far is it to the Richfield Exit. And the woman says, oh, it's about 80 miles, sir. And he goes, fuck, we're screwed. <laughs> My favorite quote. Uh, and I'm thinking, I'm not screwed here. I am not screwed at all. <laughs> I have a great story. Oh, hell yeah. You got the story that nobody yeah, else yeah. has. You have the scoop. So as we're approaching, as we're approaching the, um, the Coliseum, uh, Hubie turns to me and he goes, I'm going to have to ask you, not to print any of this. <laughs> good luck with that. Uh, there's a whole stadium, a whole arena full of people who've noticed that you're not there. Exactly. So what happened at the game then when you finally arrived? And did you get there in time? Uh, we got there as the game, as t- at tip-off, okay? At tip-off, basically. And, it, and the, the uh, trainer there, Mike Saunders, he had told everybody, all the reporters and everybody that Hubie was sick in his hotel room. Uh, he, had, Good line. he had flat out lied and now Hugh becomes storming in and whatever. So at the end of the, I mean, he, he was, he was already at the, at the end of his tether because the team was horrible. He was losing interest. The, the, it was clear that he was going to be fired sooner or later. So at the end of the game, he just called everybody together, all the writers. And he said, uh, listen, I know this looks bad, but all I ask is that you don't write where I took the plane from. And we're all thinking, this is probably not a good, <laughs> this is probably a personal problem that may or may not have to do with his marital arrangement. <laughs> but we, so I don't know, that was, we never did find out exactly what the, uh, what the reason was that he was flying out of LaGuardia. Wait a minute, wait a minute, sec. hold on a second. Did you, did everybody write yeah. where he no, took the flight? No, nobody from? wrote that he took off from, from LaGuardia. That was the respectful decision that was made at the time. Uh, do I regret it? Yeah, maybe a little because Hubie, Hubie, and hey, the guy is still out there, right? He's still, amazing. it's amazing, right? Um, but he could be pretty cruel. To his players. Uh, I mean, it got, pre- really? it got very ugly at times. Give us an example of that. Well, I mean, Daryl Walker f- it finally ended up sitting down at the foul line and refusing to move during a shoot-around. 
he was so fed up with the treatment. And, uh, you know, he had nicknames for some of his players, which were not very pleasant. And so, you know, now he's kind of seen as this lovable old guy who's hanging in here. And he is in a way, and it's rem- he's remarkable. Uh, but yeah, he could be mean. He could be downright mean. Anyway, that's another you know, I'm sounding really, I'm sounding really jaded here. Billy, Mark, beloved people like Billy and Hubie, and here I am saying all these nasty. Well, that's where all the good stuff <laughs> is. Come on, we know yeah. that. <laughs> all right, let's go to an actual great, great player, and that was Bernard King. And you got to see Bernard on, you know, with the Knicks, and then he suffers that knee injury, tears his ACL. And at the time, that's kind of a career-threatening thing. You just don't really come back from an ACL in the mid-'80s. Yeah. But wasn't there something to the effect that the Knicks were trying to hide how his rehab was going, and how did the reporters handle that? Yeah, uh, we had no access, and the Knicks had no access to their own star player. Bernard had these rules, and he didn't want to be watched. He had had uh, ACL surgery. He, As it turned out, he became the first athlete, really, first professional level athlete to recover well enough to perform as he had pretty much before it happened. Uh, before then, it, it nobody ever was able to do that. Norman's, Dr. Norman Scott did the surgery and it was, it was shocking as it turned out, but nobody knew this at the time. For all we knew, he was limping mm-hmm. around somewhere and would never return to basketball. So one day I was the beat writer at the time and I asked uh, Scotty Sterling, who happens to have made the two worst trades in NBA history, the, the general manager of the Knicks at the time. By the way, what were those trades? In uh, your opinion? It, it was uh, the rights to draft Kevin McHale plus Robert Parrish. He gave those up. Golden State, and he sends them to the Celtics. To Joe, for Joe Barry Carroll. How's that for a trade? Nice. <laughs> and nice. the other one... The other one was a little more indirect. He was panicking because the Knicks were playing so badly. And so he, he traded away uh, Gerald Henderson uh, for, what the, for the pick that became, uh, I mean, he acquired, he acquired Gerald Henderson for the, for the pick that became Scottie Pippen. Really? So basically he built two franchise dynasties. He built the, the Celtics and the Bulls. For somebody else. He built he built somebody else's championship yeah, two, teams. <laughs> two, two championship teams he constructed. And I did write that when he was first hired by the Knicks, and he really hated me ever since. And I don't blame oh, him. No. <laughs> that was my lead. That was my lead that the, the Knicks have just signed the guy the guy who made the worst trade in NBA history. He hadn't made the second worst trade yet until he got to the Knicks. <laughs> <laughs> You're just dealing with facts. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just the absolutely. facts, Philip. All right, so you asked Scotty Sterling, I say, what about, where hey, is Bernard? How is he, he doing? doing? And, and uh, Scotty snaps at me. He says, why don't you go find out? Well, that sounds like it's a, a dare. dare. It's a dare. It's a challenge. So we had heard my, har- my friend Harvey Ayrton, a longtime New York sports columnist and writer, and I, we decided we were going to go try in search of Bernard King. And we found out that he was working out at uh, what uh, at a at a little college, Upsala College, which no longer exists. Where's that? Like yeah, East Orange, yeah, exactly, somewhere in exactly. New Jersey, right? East Orange, yeah, yeah, New yeah. Jersey. Okay. You got it. Yeah, I like your knowledge of the of, of defunct colleges. Very good. 
<laughs> well, you know, I went, I went, you know, I, I, I took a tour of quite a few. Yeah. So anyway, um, Harvey and I, we sneak up to the gym and look, we peer, we get out, we get down on our knees and we look through this little window uh, and we see Bernard and he's working out. From the outside, wait, 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 yeah, you're outside yeah. the gym we're and you're looking in, in we're, like we're, two like little most, kids. Like most people, <laughs> we were scared to death of Bernard King, who had the scariest game face in the world other than maybe Mark Messier. That was the only other guy who ever compared it. He, he was an intense had, guy. Yeah, Bernard yeah. was scared. So we're there, we're, we're looking around, but we, we're looking and he's playing great against, he's, he's scrimmaging against a, a college player, basically. And he's putting, you know, he's just schooling him. And he looks like the old Bernard. So we're, you know, we're congratulating each other for this. And, and all of a sudden, Bernard disappears. And the next thing we know, he's behind us. Oh, <laughs> on the outs- he came outside. On the outs- yeah, he came outside. Apparently, our heads were very obvious. The, sh- the sun was shining from behind us. We were not kidding anybody. <laughs> so, so Bernard... Bernard comes up behind us and says, what the, what the hell are you guys doing here? And, and I, I, I piped up, or, or Harvey did, and said, we were, you know, very, in this sort of squeaky voice, uh, Scotty said, we should come and look. And, he's, and he, Bernard says, fuck Scotty. <laughs> how, many, how many players, how many players say that about their general manager? You got to love it. That's tremendous. So, and Bernard said, you guys, what? And he, he, he says, you guys want to see me? Come on in. So we go inside. Yeah. And sure enough, we watch him do a full workout. And he's spectacular. He's, he's Bernard. And so we go back to the, back to the newspaper office. And we're, we're on, on cloud nine, the ultimate scoop. We finally see Bernard. And he's just as good as he ever was. And we, we envision a front page, you know, story. Uh, let alone a back page. And, it, uh, and this is how sports writing works. It turned out to be a tragic day because uh, <clears throat> Len Bias, the great player who had been drafted by the Boston Celtics, died of cocaine uh, overdose that same day. Oh, wow. And we got yeah. knocked off the back pages. Wow. But uh, it, was still a, it was still a good story. It was still a good story. Well, you went, you went searching for... Bernard, and it paid off. Kudos to you and uh, Harvey for doing that. I mean, that's that's just great reporting instincts, right? <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It, you know, there's nothing like a general manager daring you to do so. Well, sometimes you get sent on searches and you don't really want to do it. And this is kind of an NBA segue into another world of sports. I think it's the late 80s NBA finals and you're in... Los Angeles, the Lakers, before game one, and you get a call from the office at the Daily mm-hmm. News uh, with some orders, right? What were you, what were you told? Well, yeah, uh, this is a, this is a, you know, everybody wants to be a sports writer until stuff like this happens. Very few people remember this, but Howard Cosell, in his, sort of his, his twilight years, became a sports columnist for the New York Daily News. He wasn't a very good writer, and by then he really wasn't a very good reporter either. But but he was such a peach of a fellow. He was a name. He was a big <laughs> name, and so who wouldn't jump at having Howard Cosell's picture and column in their newspaper? So we signed him up. I remember he called me up. He called now. He called the office once, and I picked him up. Picked up the phone, and he said, "Listen, young man, don't be nervous. This is Howard Cosell." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so he, he had quite he had quite an opinion of himself. Anyway, so I get a phone call from our sports editor and he says, Howard Cosell has just written a column saying that John McEnroe is in drug rehab at the Beverly Hills, whatever. I can't remember the exact name of the the the, uh, the place, but it was a rehab center. And uh, I need you, he tell, my editor says to me, I need you to confirm it. We know McEnroe comes to these, a lot of these Laker games out there on the West Coast. If he's there tonight, go ask him. Oh, okay, <laughs> sure. So, so, so here's, you know, the man with the most famous temper, other than maybe George Brett, uh, in sports, um, and I'm supposed to go up to him and, uh, and to ask him if he's in a drug rehab center. And I, for all I know, he's with his wife at the time, Tatum O'Neill. Well, I go to the game and praying that he doesn't show up. But sure enough, McEnroe is there and they show him on the television. So I don't have a choice. I have to go to talk to him because everybody sees he's there. So I go down at halftime. He's with Vetus Gerolitis, the great tennis player who has the best tennis court ever. Uh, nobody beats Vetus Gerolitis 17 times in a row. Uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. So Mac and Mac and Vetus is, are sitting there at the game and you yeah, come walking yeah, I, up. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I digress. Um, and I come walking up and I say to John, listen, I figure I'm going to use, I'll use Cosell as the middleman here. I say, Howard Cosell has written uh, a story for us, a column for us saying that you're in drug rehab. And McEnroe glares at me and says, well, you tell Cosell to go to hell. So I call up the office and I tell, give him the quote and I'm just happy to be done with it. And they say, well, he didn't deny it, did he? Oh. And I said, Meanwhile, you're trying to cover an NBA finals game too. It's going on. Exactly. On deadline. On West Coast deadline. (laughs) (laughs) Which anybody knows. And the telephones there were terrible. (laughs) We all had to share one telephone. Anyway, on and on. So, uh, so my editor says, you're going to have to go t- t- tail John McEnroe and see if he goes to drug rehab. <sighs> so I say, well, I, I, you know, so I say to myself, I don't know where John McEnroe lives. I'm not going to tail John McEnroe. I'm not Humphrey Bogart in some noir movie. <laughs> um, so, so I, uh, so I, instead, I decide to go to this actual drug rehab center and poke around there. And I go there and it tur- there's, a, there's a note on the window saying this, this place is closed. And it, the note is from six months ago. Oh, so it's been closed this whole time. For six months, it's been closed. And, and, and for all I know, you know, McEnroe may have been there once. I mean, there were all kinds of rumors, but... To write that he is in drug rehab was completely wrong and would have gotten us in real trouble. And Cosell just didn't do his homework, which at that time was pretty, I guess, typical for him. So the Daily News did not run. No, we did Cosell's not run. Column. We did not run that uh, John McEnroe is in a drug rehab center that is closed. Article. <laughs> well, you saved the paper a lawsuit. That was one sure. time I may have. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of relationship did you have with McEnroe at the time and then going forward? Yeah, I do. I have covered a lot of tennis and uh, I went to Zimbabwe with him once. Uh, really? Cover, yeah, I covered the uh, U.S. Davis Cup match at Zimbabwe. He was captain and 
it was a crazy place. The, the, it was an indoor arena. The, the, the roof was leaking. There was a clown named Bobo the Clown who was dancing along the sidelines. And this was not exactly, <laughs> this was not exactly what John McEnroe was used to uh, at a tournament. He, he was used <laughs> to being a clown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, so I knew him pretty well. But that doesn't mean anything with John. Uh, you know, I'll go up to John even now at a U.S. Open. Uh, and just out of politeness, I'll say, John, Philip Bondi, New York Daily News, or whatever. And when I do that, he'll say, big fucking deal. <laughs> <laughs> the so, Brad from yeah. Queens forever. But he does, he does <laughs> read the, he did, I don't know if he still does, but boy, he used to read the papers. He once yelled at a, a New York Post writer who had, uh, given it, he had been the official scorer at a Yankee game and had given an error to somebody. And, and McEnroe just suddenly stopped in the middle of his press conference and started to belittle this uh, writer for for calling an error at, uh, at a Yankee. Well, maybe game. he was channeling his Norman McLean. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you did a lot of tennis over the years. I think you covered like twenty something Wimbledon's. Um, mm-hmm. You know, center court. Uh, the you know such a you know the the beauty of that place for somebody who's not been there as a reporter, it's, it's so, so intimate, right? I mean, compared to what you think of it when you see it on TV. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, I guess it's my favorite assignment. It's, it's a little cushier than the world cup. Uh, <laughs> and it's certainly a lot cushier than the Olympics, but it's, it, there's so much going on and you, you're running back and forth between matches. And, and the best thing about Wimbledon is that, or always was in the days before the internet was that you had the five extra hours difference, right? So you could take your time and really construct a, a story and do the reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowadays, of course, that's different. You have to file as soon as it's over anyway, because it, it doesn't matter that it's just 1 PM in the afternoon there, you know, you've got to fire from file for the web. So that's different, but yeah, it's a, it's an elegant, it's an elegant, event. And, and what's great about it is the contrast, the, the, the craziness. I always thought tennis was a great tabloid sport because crazy things happen, as we all know, the Serena tantrums. And I, I, we're talking about Wimbledon and the Jeff Tarango incident is still my favorite. Well, what, what, what happened with Jeff Tarango, was, for those who don't recall? He was yeah, an American tennis player. Crazy, crazy guy 80s. with a wonderful sense of humor, but he absolutely had a, a terrible tantrum. I mean, he he once lowered his pants and mooned a, t- a crowd in Tokyo. But at, at nice. Wimbledon, he threw a fit over a call by a, a, an umpire named Bruno Rebu. And Bruno, Bruno, <laughs> I don't know what happened. The French umpire, I love it. Yeah, so Bruno made a call that he didn't like, and he, he stormed away. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, Jeff Tarango, it's uh, unusual, but not too unusual. And then the best part, his wife shows up. She goes to this um, chair umpire and slaps him in the face. Uh, really? Yeah, she slapped Did you guys see this? Like we, right on the court? We didn't, we didn't see it because it was on a side court. But, but here's the great, you know, this is the gift that keeps giving because she shows up in the press conference. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And she's talking, yes, I, yes, I slapped him, but he deserved it. <laughs> and there was were, she sitting right next to Jeff? Was it the two yeah, of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, she came in and of course, 
the Wimbledon has all these moderators who are supposed to stop these sort of things, but he didn't know what to do. This wasn't a crazy question from the uh, from the reporters, from the British reporters, which what which is what we usually got. This was uh, this was a, a a wife, so they couldn't stop her, and uh, it was a, it was wonderful. Best press conference ever. Well, usually press conferences are pretty staid and not really helpful in, in many ways, but sometimes a press conference like that erupts, or you get a press conference like at three in the morning, like you had at Lillehammer at the Olympics. I mean, you were on the front lines of the whole Tanya Hardy, Nancy Kerrigan debacle that went on for weeks. I mean, Tanya shows up and you have a press conference at three in the morning at the Louis Hammer Olympics in 94? Yeah, I mean, ice, uh, figure skating was usually not at the top of the priority list for the New York Daily News, which is a tabloid paper. But when Nancy was whacked, suddenly it became the biggest story in the world. And so... When I was in Lillehammer covering this, I mean, I was on 24-hour notice to to uh, to track down anything that Tanya Harden did or said. And she showed up at around 3 o'clock. By the way, Philip, by the way, I want to ask you real quick. Did you, were you there for the whacking I was, in Detroit? I was at, in Detroit at the time of the whacking covering the U.S. figure skating championships. However, I was interviewing Isaiah Thomas several miles away. <laughs> doing the while you were there type stuff that journalists do a lot. And so I, I fought my way through a snowstorm because another reporter called me up and told me, you better get your ass back here. So I got back there to discover the whacking had taken place. And I was on the scene for the uh, the aftermath of the whacking. Yes. I don't know. The Kerrigan camp might have said, where <laughs> yeah. was that Philip Bondi at? You know, we I, didn't Isaiah, see him Isaiah here would have time. given me my alibi. I don't know about Isaiah. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. All right, so let's get back to Lillehammer. It's three in the morning and you're at a press conference. Come on, Tanya. Yeah, I mean, she really kind of messed things up for all of us, but we got through that. Uh, I missed a lot of good stories because of her. I missed Dan Jansen winning finally a gold medal in speed skating because I had to be at her stupid practice, things like that. But anyway, what what really... I had this amazing place where I was staying in Lillehammer. Never anything before or after like it. It was a wood, it was a, like a log cabin up in the woods. And I could look up out of a picture window and see on some nights the northern lights. Can you imagine this? Nice. Oh, it yes. was just something. It was it was incredible. And then, you know, she was ruining things. <laughs> And, and then yeah, one night, as Tanya was one to. Yeah, one night I get a phone call, or one day I guess it was during the day, uh, from a news site, from a news site editor. And anybody who's been a sports writer knows that the last thing you ever want is a phone call from news site, right? I'm sure yeah, you. Yeah, worst had, thing you can you, hear. Story A one wants your story. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know they're gonna torture and that, torture you and then butcher the story anyway. So it's the it's an editor and, and she says the managing editor who is a Brit the managing editor wants you to get an exclusive interview with Nancy Kerrigan and he says we're willing to pay $250,000 for it. Wait a minute, pay? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But he's British. You don't he's do that. British. This is of journalism. Course, but the guy's British, right? So 
So, you know, I, I'm put in a pretty bad spot here. I'm not going to do that. It's something I don't do. Uh, but I can't say I'm not going to do it or, you know, it'll look, I'll probably get recalled from my, my beautiful log cabin. Uh, so, so what did I you just, do? I did the smart thing. I, I, I just simply told them that I asked her agent and he declined, which he would have done anyway. Uh, and they see, and, and as you know, Newside has a very short concentration span. Uh, they had already moved on to something else and it was forgotten instantly. Well, once again, your instincts were right, Philip. Ah, uh, yes. Those you knew how to handle, you knew how to handle it in the moment. That's all. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it was, it was kind of a cowardly way. I should have, what I should have said is screw you. I, that's, that's not American journalism. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's let the Brits do that. So, but you know what? The Brits, uh, they'll pay for stories, but, or you never know what you're going to get from overseas, right? The media. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Were you there, by the way, I'm thinking of overseas media. Um, you get these questions. Like, I know from my experience at Olympics, they were, some of these foreign journalists would ask these questions. I just couldn't believe <laughs> that they would ask that. Yeah, you know, you yeah. think the American press is tough. But yeah. man, I witnessed some things that uh, that just made my eyes bulge out. Yeah, they're they're much more patriotic for one thing. I mean, they they seem to be really invested, yeah. really invested in their their teams and their athletes. Yeah, they actually cheer, right? And they get happy. Yeah. But if you yeah. piss, but if you lose, yeah, then yeah. The, the, it's like yeah. they're the fan in them takes over. Well, there's the famous uh, question from a uh, from an Eastern European. A uh, reporter at uh, a po- water polo after his team lost the water polo match in in, a, in the Olympics when he got up to the mic and he said, "You are disgraced to this country. Please explain." <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I was at the El Jerush uh, uh, press conference in Sydney when he got defeated. I think it was the fifteen hundred, and he's weeping. You know, it was a huge story that he that he got beat again, and um, it was along the lines. The question along the lines was like, "You have let down two billion Moroccans, or whatever." <laughs> how do you feel? And I'm like, "How do you feel?" <laughs> he let down two million Moroccans. How do you feel? Yeah, it it can be uh, it can be rough. Wimbledon is rough. I mean, the uh, those guys, those Brits. Those tabloid Brits, they are known for their bizarre and crazy questions. They hammered, uh, uh, they hammered Boris Becker for having, a, a, having rented two videos from the local video store and not returning them. <laughs> and they, uh, I remember. <laughs> Big breaking news he, in Britain. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Boris just looked at them and who is, you know, has served in prison since then over something much more important. Anyway. Boris uh, just looked at them and said, are you serious? You can't be serious, right? Uh, <laughs> they would ask, they asked. Uh, He's like, John Macro, you cannot be yeah, serious. <laughs> yeah. They asked Yelena Jokic, this poor teenager. She might have been 20 by then. She was sitting up there and one of them said, Yelena, what is that thing on your face? She had oh, to say, on. it's a mole. You know, I mean, come on. And oh. they asked, they asked also, they, they oh. also asked, there was a woman who, Ivo Karlovich, who's a sweetheart, and used to have a terrible, terrible stuttering problem. Couldn't get through a sentence in less than a minute. One of the reporters, uh, he was telling, desperately telling stories about his, his uh, upbringing with his parents. 
And one of the reporters said, Evo, could you spell the name of your parents, please? Oh, God, it was awful. It was just, oh, it was just awful. So, yeah, they were. <laughs> oh, the glory days of sports writing, right? Well, overseas, it's different in the press conferences. It's also just different when you're trying to cover something. You're traveling, and it's, yes, it's great. I mean, you're getting paid to go around the world. I mean, it's it's ridiculous when you think about it. No wonder the newspaper industry tanked. They were sending <laughs> me all over the place. Uh, so I think you covered sports on like six continents, like, like 12, 13 Olympics maybe, World Cups all over the place. Um, we just had a World Cup in Qatar, but you were in Qatar in 1993, because I think the, the U.S. was going to host the World Cup the following yes. year. So the New York Daily News sends you over to Qatar at the time. Yeah, I didn't see a woman the whole time I was there, really. Wait a minute, really? Yeah, like, I didn't the see whole time a woman. you were there? I, I, the only women I saw were, were, uh, were tourists and foreigners like myself. Um, there were no native women out in the streets or in the uh, even service jobs. I didn't see a woman. Uh, it was, it was completely, you know, it was a, it was a, an emirate, but it was also a theolo- a very much so a theological emirate. And, uh, they would literally pull out the, uh, the plug from the soda machine during prayer sessions, uh, in the, you know, dur- in the press yeah. room, they would come and pull out the plug so that there'd be no noise or, or any distractions, things like that. So, uh, it was very different indeed. You also saw quite a few rivalries. Yes. <laughs> We're talking serious yes. rivals. We got Saudi Arabia versus Iraq. We got Iran versus Iraq. We got South Korea versus North Korea. I mean, we're not no, talking about that. No, that's why they sent me or why I convinced them to send me, which I still don't believe happened. I spent 11 days in Doha uh, on their, you know, on their dole, on their, you know, they paid for everything. And what an experience, right? I mean, crazy experience watching these, you know, people carrying hot Saddam Hussein posters or uh, all over the place. And like you said, it, the rivalries were political powder kicks. They really were. I mean, the only team there, there was- We're talking about countries that are practically at yeah, war. Uh, two of them or three of them were had been at war very recently before that. The only team that didn't really matter in the political uh, scheme of things at the time there was Japan, uh, whose journalists cried, Sobbing, sobbing, sobbing when their team failed to make the World Cup. I'll, I remember them. Really? Yeah, I remember them. Wow. But yeah, they, these. That's like you used to do whenever the Knicks didn't make the oh, playoffs, yeah, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you mean I don't have to go to Detroit? <laughs> Philip, when you think back on those type of trips, not just that one, but all these different assignments around the world, as a journalist, how did you approach assignments like that? The most important thing in most of these cases was not the event, the sports event itself, but the the whole, the atmosphere surrounding it, the craziness that was going on. Um, that was what was, to me, the most compelling. I, I remember I got sent, I was touring with the uh, U.S. soccer team before, in throughout Europe, right before the 1990 World Cup, and I was in Budapest, and uh, it Actually, this was in 1991, I guess. No, 93. It was, I don't know when it was, but whenever it was, it was the first, it, was, it happened to coincide with Hungary's first pre-election. Uh, and so I called up the, the, the news desk and I said, do you want me to cover this? 
And the guy said, well, yeah, yeah, why not? And, you know, I did. I covered I covered Hungary's first presidential, uh, free presidential election. And to me, that was far more fun and challenging and important than writing about how the U.S. soccer team was preparing for the world, upcoming World Cup. Right. You tried to put the reader there, right? Yeah. You tried to take them yeah. with oh, you. Absolutely. Anything, any description of the of the uh, the scene. Scenes are the most important thing, obviously, or else you may as well just be covering another Knicks game. Give us a little bit of sports writer horror travel stories. <laughs> just things that just don't uh, haunt I have you. Plenty of them. I, in fact, I sort of became known for them among my uh, peers. But yeah, uh, first trip, first World Cup trip in 1990 to, to Italy. I got a, uh, a rail pass. Uh, and I showed up at the Rome train station to have it stamped. Uh, I was very, very happy with myself that I had done all these things properly. And I go up to the window and the fellow stamps my URL pass. He validates it. And I look down and uh, all my bags are gone. <laughs> I was standing on line with. Oh, everything. Is, everything is gone. Is <laughs> Everything. Everything's gone. And this is the first day of a of a five week trip to through Italy. I have nothing except my wallet and a passport. Uh and later my wallet was pickpocketed in, in a Torino uh you know, same, a Torino trip. same trip. You got robbed twice. Yeah, yeah. So there, you know, but there's a certain freedom in having nothing. Philip, I will say this. You're the only reporter I know that covered the same baseball game for two different newspapers over two months. Same game. And also got robbed twice on one. I'm a twofer trip. if there ever were one. <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I, I, I got mugged in. Uh, I got all my credit cards stolen or lost in Brazil for the that World Cup. Uh, I had to write a check to somebody to get Brazilian money uh, and to make it through that particular trip. Uh, somebody was charging forty forty five hundred dollars at a time on my credit card. It was cloned. I still had it, but it was being cloned. Was this like a phone card or a credit card? I had a phone card stolen at the at the old Orange Bowl in Miami, where I made a phone call at halftime. I tried to make a phone call to call my wife, and they said your card is blocked. You have like four thousand calls to Kuwait and China <laughs> on it. I'm like, really. That's going to be a lot of salads <laughs> on the expense account. Yeah, we we we've been through a lot. I I I was mugged outside of Shea Stadium after a late game. As you know, Todd, we get out of games very late sometimes, very late, and and it it can be a little dangerous. What happened? I mean, what happened to? Uh, did you get? Yeah, like, two two guys. One guy was was choking me from behind at a chokehold. The other guy was going through everything. I, they really didn't like what you wrote, Well, I was on. desperately trying to convince them to take my portabubble, which is a, an instrument that we used back then, which you were probably familiar with. The portabubble, which yeah. should have been blown up. <laughs> so this poor, big, clunky thing, this big, clunky black thing, which I knew belonged to the newspaper, not to me. I'd much rather they had taken that than my wallet. But they were not interested in the portabubble. Well, who would be? I mean, did you ever try to send on that thing? Take a look Why would on you eBay, Todd. Take a look. It's now worth something. Those muggers were very short-sighted, I'll tell you. All right. I'll have to look that up. I'll have to look that up. Well, sources tell me that there's one terrible incident involving you that happened right here in the United States in Washington, D.C., and I think it involves a porta potty Please explain. 
As the one reporter said, you are a national disgrace. Please explain. Yeah, this was the ultimate dilemma for a sports writer. And I, I think Bob Ford got the biggest kick out of this one. Bob Ford, the great, the great Philadelphia writer. He loves this one. So let's, let's do this for Bob. It was very late at night. We got out of another uh, late night World Cup game. People, there weren't many people around anymore, and there aren't any bathrooms really. So you go to the porta potty in the in the uh, parking lot, which is our fate in life all too often. And uh, I uh, I drop my rental car keys into the porta potty, pretty deep into the porta potty. I might add. Now here's the Was dilemma. Was it a three pointer? Yeah, I'd say so. So here's here's the dilemma. I mean. I have a rental car. It's after midnight. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I don't even have a cell phone back then. What do I do? You know, do I, do I, uh, do I, I guess I could go to a payphone somewhere and call a friend to pick me up somewhere. But I, I, this, this car, this rental car is just sitting there. Oh, it's an awful situation. So I took out my pen and I started to dig. Oh. The decision was made. The decision was made. Now, oh. back then, would be this is before key fobs. They had, they had several keys on the uh, on the on the chain there, so that made things a little easier to see and to spot around. So I dug around, and sure enough, I did come upon these uh, these keys, and I did pull them out. <laughs> I got rid of the pen immediately. Oh. Uh, <laughs> there was nowhere to you really got rid of wash that good my Marriott pen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and what can I tell you? I did it. I did it. It worked. And I I went to the nearest rest area on the highway and I washed everything. But it was a tough, tough decision to make. But I think, Todd, would you have done the same thing in my in my situation? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> but you were much more dedicated to the craft. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Philip, I've really enjoyed this. It's been a lot of fun. We've covered a lot of ground, including dropping keys into a toilet. Uh, we've been all over the world. We've been in Yankee Stadium. We've been in uh, NBA trips with Hubie Brown. And it's been a lot of fun recounting uh, all these years of uh, covering sports, uh, as you did so well uh, for the New York Daily News, the Times, and other papers in uh, North, northeast area. I'm kidding. <laughs> Philip, thanks so much for joining us. Well, Todd, it's been fun to see you again, and, and you're doing such good stuff here. Uh, I hope everybody just keeps listening because it's important to remember. It really is. Well, thanks a lot, Philip, and uh, I wish you all the best, and let's stay in touch. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. We have new episodes every other Wednesday. Subscribe and review us. Five stars, and I might buy you a beer. And check out the Pressbox Access channel on YouTube. You'll see a wide variety of clips from interviews, such as Dave Kindred comparing Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus, or Peter King recalling his early days of covering Bill Parcells and Lawrence Taylor. You can also listen to entire episodes on that YouTube channel. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button. Hey, it's free. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And please spread the word to friends, family, and anyone who is interested in sports, journalism, and history. All are welcomed. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Huffman, and our engineer Nathan Corson. 
I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo Joe. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs>